Section three of the Satyricon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Satyricon by Gaius Petronius Arbiter. Translated by W. C. Firebough. Section three, volume one. Adventures of Encolpius and his companions. Chapter twelve through nineteen. Chapter the twelfth. Twilight was falling as we entered the market place, in which we noticed a quantity of things for sale, not any of much value, it is true, but such as could be disposed of to the best advantage when the semi darkness would serve to hide their doubtful origin. As we had brought our stolen mantle, we proceeded to make use of so favourable an opportunity, and in a secluded spot displayed a corner of it, hoping the splendid garment would attract some purchaser. Nor was it long before a certain peasant, whose face was familiar to my eyes, came up accompanied by a young woman, and began to examine the garment very closely. Ascyltos, in turn, cast a glance at the shoulders of our rustic customer, and was instantly struck dumb with astonishment. Nor could I myself look upon this man without some emotion, for he seemed to be the identical person who had picked up the ragged tunic in the lonely wood, and as a matter of fact he was. Ascyltos, afraid to believe the evidence of his own eyes for fear of doing something rash, approached the man as a prospective buyer, took the hem of the tunic from the rustic's shoulders, and felt it thoroughly. CHAPTER THE THIRTEENTH Oh, wonderful stroke of fortune! The peasant had not yet laid his meddling hands upon the seams, but was scornfully offering the thing for sale, as though it had been the leavings of some beggar. When Askiltos had assured himself that the hoard was intact, and had taken note of the social status of the seller, he led me a little aside from the crowd and said, Do you know, brother, that the treasure about which I was so worked up has come back to us? That is the little tunic, and it seems that the gold pieces are still untouched. What ought we to do, and how shall we make good our claim? I was overjoyed, not so much at seeing our booty, as I was for the reason that fortune had released me from a very ugly suspicion. I was opposed to doing anything by devious methods, thinking that should he prove unwilling to restore to the proper owner an article not his own, it ought to come to a civil action and a judgment secured. CHAPTER THE FOURTEENTH Not so Askiltos who was afraid of the law, and demurred. Who knows us here? Who will place any credence in anything we say? It seems to me it would be better to buy, ours though it is, and we know it, and recover the treasure at small cost, rather than to engage in a doubtful lawsuit. Of what avail are any laws where money rules alone, where poverty can never win its cases, Detractors of the time who bear the cynic's scrip are known to often sell the truth and keep their faces, 
so justice is at public auction bought the knight give judgment as gold says he ought but with the exception of a two as piece with which we had intended purchasing peas and lupines there was nothing to hand so for fear our loot should escape us in the interim we resolved to appraise the mantle at less and through a small sacrifice secure a greater profit accordingly we spread it out and the young woman of the covered head who was standing by the peasant's side narrowly inspected the markings seized the hem with both hands and screamed thieves at the top of her voice we were greatly disconcerted at this and for fear that inactivity on our part should seem to lend colour to her charges we laid hold of the dirty ragged tunic in our turn and shouted with equal spite that this was our property which they had in their possession but our cases were by no means on an equality and the hucksters who had crowded around us at the uproar laughed at our spiteful claim and very naturally too since one side laid claim to a very valuable mantle while the other demanded a rag which was not worth a good patch chapter the fifteenth ascyltos when he had secured silence adroitly put a stop to their laughter by exclaiming we can see that each puts the greater value upon his own property let them return our tunic to us and take back their mantle this exchange was satisfactory enough to the peasant and the young woman but some night prowling shyster lawyers who wished to get possession of the mantle for their own profit demanded that both articles be deposited with them and the judge could look into the case on the morrow for it would appear that the ownership of the articles was not so much to the point as was the suspicion of a robbery that attached to both sides the question of sequestration arose and one of the hucksters i do not remember which but he was bald and his forehead was covered with sebaceous wens and he sometimes did odd jobs for the lawyers seized the mantle and vowed that he would see to it that it was produced at the proper time and place but it was easily apparent that he desired nothing but that the garment should be deposited with thieves and vanish thinking that we would be afraid to appear as claimants for fear of being charged with crime as far as we were concerned we were as willing as he and fortune aided the cause of each of us for the peasant infuriated at our demand that his rags be shown in public threw the tunic in askiltos face released us from responsibility and demanded that the mantle which was the only object of litigation be sequestered as we thought we had recovered our treasure we returned hurriedly to the inn and fastening the door we had a good laugh at the shrewdness of the hucksters and not less so at that of our enemies for by it they had returned our money to us while we were unstitching the tunic to get at the gold pieces we overheard someone quizzing the innkeeper 
as to what kind of people those were who had just entered his house. Alarmed at this inquiry, I went down, when the questioner had gone, to find out what was the matter, and learned that the praetor's lictor, whose duty it was to see that the names of strangers were entered in his rolls, had seen two people come into the inn whose names were not yet entered, and that was the reason he had made inquiry as to their names and means of support. Mine host furnished this information in such an off-hand manner that I became suspicious as to our entire safety in his house. So, in order to avoid arrest, we decided to go out and not to return home until after dark, and we sallied forth, leaving the management of dinner to Guiton. As it suited our purpose to avoid the public streets, we strolled through the more unfrequented parts of the city, and at dusk we met two women in Stolas, in a lonely spot, and they were by no means homely. Walking softly, we followed them to a temple which they entered, and from which we could hear a curious humming, which resembled the sound of voices issuing from the depths of a cavern. Curiosity impelled us also to enter the temple. There we caught sight of many women who resembled Bacantes, each of whom brandished in her right hand an emblem of Priapus. We were not permitted to see more, for as their eyes fell upon us, they raised such a hubbub that the vault of the temple trembled. They attempted to lay hands upon us, but we ran back to our inn as fast as we could go. Chapter the Sixteenth We had just disposed of the supper prepared by Guiton, when there came a timid rapping at the door. We turned pale. Who is there? we asked. Open, and you will find out, came the answer. While we were speaking, the bar fell down of its own accord, the doors flew open and admitted our visitor. She was the self-same young lady of the covered head, who had but a little while before stood by the peasant's side. So you thought, said she, that you could make a fool of me, did you? I am Quartilla's handmaid, Quartilla whose rites you interrupted in the shrine. She has come to the inn in person and begs permission to speak with you. Don't be alarmed. She neither blames your mistake, nor does she demand punishment. On the contrary, she wonders what God has brought such well-bred young gentlemen into her neighborhood. Chapter the Seventeenth We were still holding our tongues and refraining from any expression of opinion when the lady herself entered the room, attended by a little girl. Seating herself upon the bed, she wept for a long time. Not even then did we interject a single word, but waited all attention for what was to follow these well-ordered tears and this show of grief. When the diplomatic thunderstorm had passed over, she withdrew her haughty head from her mantle, and wringing her hands until the joints cracked, what is the meaning of such audacity 
she demanded. Where did you learn such tricks? They are worthy of putting to shame the assurance of all the robbers of the past. I pity you, so help me the God of truth I do, for no one can look with impunity upon that which is unlawful for him to see. In our neighborhood there are so many gods that it is easier to meet one than it is to find a man. But do not think that I was actuated by any desire for revenge when I came here. I am more moved by your age than I am by my own injury, for it is my belief that youthful imprudence led you into committing a sacrilegious crime. That very night I tossed so violently in the throes of a dangerous chill that I was afraid I had contracted a tertian ague and in my dreams I prayed for a medicine. I was ordered to seek you out and to arrest the progress of the disease by means of an expedient to be suggested by your wonderful penetration. That cure does not matter so much, however, for a deeper grief gnaws at my vitals and drags me down, almost to the very doors of death itself. I am afraid that, with the careless impulsiveness of youth, you may divulge to the common herd what you witnessed in the shrine of Priapus, and reveal the rights of the gods to the rabble. On this account I stretch out my suppliant hands to your knees, and beg and pray that you do not make a mockery and a joke of our nocturnal rites, nor lay bare the secrets of so many years, into which scarcely a thousand persons are initiated. Chapter the Eighteenth The tears poured forth again after this appeal, and shaken by deep sobs, she buried her whole face and breast in my bed, and I, moved by pity and apprehension, begged her to be of good cheer, and to make herself perfectly easy as to both of those issues. For not only would we not betray any secrets to the rabble, but we would also second divine providence, at any peril to ourselves, if any god had indicated to her any cure for her tertian ague. The woman cheered up at this promise and smothered me with kisses. From tears she passed to laughter, and fell to running her fingers through the long hair that hung down about my ears. I will declare a truce with you, she said, and withdraw my complaint. But had you been unwilling to administer the medicine which I seek, I had a troop in readiness for the morrow, which would have exacted satisfaction for my injury and reparation for my dignity. To be flouted is disgraceful, but to dictate terms sublime. Pleased am I to choose what course I will, even sages will retort an insult at the proper tune. Victor most is he who does not kill. Then she suddenly clapped her hands, and broke into such a peal of laughter that we were alarmed. The maid, who had been the first to arrive, did likewise, on one side of us, as also did the little girl who had entered with the madame herself. Chapter the Nineteenth 
The whole place was filled with mocking laughter, and we, who could see no reason for such a change of front, stared blankly at each other and then at the women. Then Quartilla spoke up finally. I give orders that no mortal man should be admitted into this inn this day, so that I could receive the treatment for my ague without interruption. Askiltos was, for the moment, struck dumb by this admission of Quartilla's, and I turned colder than a Gallic winter, and could not utter a word, but the personnel of the company relieved me from the fear that the worst might be yet to come, for they were only three young women, too weak to attempt any violence against us, who were of the male sex, at least, even if we had nothing else of the man about us, and this was an asset. Then, too, we were girded higher, and I had so arranged matters that if it came to a fight I would engage Quartilla myself, Askiltos the maid, and Giton the girl. While I was turning this plan over in my mind, Quartilla came to close quarters to receive the treatment for her ague, but having her hopes disappointed, she flounced out in a rage, and returning in a little while, she had us overpowered by some unknown vagabonds, and gave orders for us to be carried away to a splendid palace. Then our determination gave place to astonishment, and death, sure and certain, began to obscure the eyes of suffering. End of section 3